Ready to go? Yeah. You're ready. I'm ready. I was born ready. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) You're not ready. Now I'm ready. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we recap MC12, the ministerial meeting of the WTO, which has been in the news. We talk about a new law passed in the U.S. that puts a spotlight on human rights issues and trade with China. And a little later, we'll be talking to Chad Bone on what he learned from MC12, whether geopolitical considerations factor into trade more now than they ever did before, as well as discuss his favorite podcast, Hint, It's Not Us. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's get into it. <laughs> well, everybody, welcome to episode 34. 34 is also the atomic number of selenium, a chemical non-metal element that has similar properties to arsenics. Yikes. It's also named after Selene, the Greek goddess of the moon, and no, not Selena, the late pop star. 34 also happens to be, and listeners will probably be interested to know this, it's also my current age. Uh, that's great. That's really great. I, I love Selenium in uh, High School Musical. You know how you know I skipped a generation? Because I went straight to J-Lo, Selena, and uh, I forgot okay. all about Selena. I, that's what I'm here for. Before we get into everything okay. else, <laughs> I'm proud to report that they found a Russian spy at my graduate school, Sice. Oh. Apparently, he spent a few years in Brazil coming up with a new identity. Difficult uh, gig there. He was a very active student at SICE, began taking classes from ex-CIA directors and military types and stuff. But the one thing apparently he couldn't get rid of was his accent. So people kept asking him if he spoke Russian. He said, Niet, comrade, I'm Brazilian. <laughs> My name is Joao. <laughs> Joao Cherkasov. So he kept stalking like that. And then he got all the way through SICE and graduated with a degree, as we all did. But they caught him when he tried to get into the UN. That's when the dragnet. I mean, that's what it's there for, to filter out the, the less good, good from the less so, good. Go to Brazil, create a new identity, get myself a backstory. Uh, all I know is your Russian accent sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. in Red Dawn. No, it wasn't a Red Dawn. Was that with Jim Belushi? Also Albanian. What was his name? Red Heat. Not the Dawn. That Different Heat. Different <laughs> Red. In, we're very close yeah. here. Yeah. It's an 80s movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. We really <laughs> narrowed it down, but Jim Belushi was in it. Anyway, listeners will be happy to know that uh, I watched Top Gun again, the second one. I've seen the Top theater. Gun 2 twice now. Yeah, because I have time on my hands. And just to update you on my brain injury, I got through it better than the first time. So that's progress. Listeners will be happy to know that I've also now graduated to two Aperol spritzes per week. So I think that's progress and a sign that... And if any of you are in the better. neurosurgery business, you'll recognize this immediately on the Top Gun scale. I don't know about you. When that when that, when that that theme music comes up, it's like, I'm an 80s I, baby, yeah. even though the movie came out before I came out. I, <laughs> <laughs> Top Gun 2 wasn't around back then. Now you have the opportunity to feel it all over again. Let's go watch it again. That's what I think. You could be my Thanks, co- goose. Be my oh, no, I'm goose. Uh, you're goose. If anybody's goose, you're goose. Actually, the tall guy is the one that died. He's in the backseat. I'm the short guy. You're the guy that died. The jet wash. Boom. Hint for people who did not watch Top Gun 2. It did not turn out so well for Val in the movie either. Tom Cruise is, there can be only one Highlander. And that's Tom Cruise. That's a mixed martial arts image. Bad 80s reference. I win the award for how many 80s references you can fit into a discussion about an 80s movie. For a guy that was actually born in the 1990s. In the late 80s. The very late 80s. Really? Dragon. 
88. It's a 80s, just like yeah. the 60s for me, the 80s were two of the best years of your life. I caught the tail end of that. Well then, we'll get right into this episode's What Went Wrong This Week segment. First up is something near and dear to our hearts and Rob's wallet, the WTO. So <laughs> MC12 happened. Many words have been written saying this is a sign of progress. Well, quite a few things were agreed. I think the consensus still remains that much work remains. And this is just a starting point for the WTO. So they agreed things on relating to fisheries, to food security, things on IP for vaccines, and a continuation of this moratorium on digital taxes. Rob, what did you think? I mean, I, I kind of said the bottom line up front in terms of what I thought. What well, I think we needed this. So those of us who are associated with WTO need an agreement, needed something positive. So it's a huge vote of confidence. The substance of the different areas, we'll hear a little bit more from Chad later in this episode about. I think they're not going to blow anybody's socks off. Although fishery subsidies was a real must. That's something that they've been negotiating for 20 years. So if this stops overfishing in already overfished stocks, and if it stops illegal subsidies to illegal fishers and so on. It could have a big impact, but hopefully this is more like a gateway agreement that leads to a better feeling about more consensus on future issues. So I think we're all kind of happy, kind of relieved, and maybe it's a tribute to the DG. Yeah, I think she definitely deserves credit, as does the rest of the WTO members in, in agreeing to this. But again, I'm a cynic, kind of a cynic by nature. I'm a happy cynic. And I think this as a starting point is a very good deal, but the work still remains to be done to get to where we want to be. But all in all, I think it's proof that these things can work. It's just a matter of now keeping the momentum going. And I think they've talked about making the ministerial conferences happen every year rather than every two years. So hopefully that's a sign that they're looking at ways to keep this momentum going rather than people forgetting about it over the course of two years and then restarting conversations, which we thought we didn't need to restart. But I do think that it's a positive outcome. It could be worse, as, as Rob Skidmore said. Yeah, I think there's also, there may have been an <laughs> element of everybody being happy to be back together physically, making, negotiating in the middle of the night, doing all those good things they used to do. So I think there was also a key momentum there. We'll see over the coming weeks, we'll hear more from, from others as they digest the news and to see where, where we stand over, over the things that were agreed in. But all in all, I think that's a positive take. The other point we want to get to, and that is, the other point we want to get to is, is talking about globalization. So it may not be dead although some have said so. There is evidence, though, that supply chains are in fact changing. So the decision makers seem increasingly concerned that supply chains should be robust and not just efficient. So as Rob has talked about when he went to school, when I went to school, the end goal was efficiency at all costs. And that seems to be shifting in a way. As a result, these companies are choosing to depend less on also jurisdictions where they're exposed to more risk. So countries have started experimenting also with industrial policies that look at sort of self-reliance and, and stronger market positions, and also trying to prop up what they call quote unquote strategic technologies and, and businesses. This obviously means picking winners and losers to an extent, or at least picking sectors that you think are, will be important for you moving forward. The question that remains is that many are worried is that if this increased quote unquote robustness of supply chains will come at higher costs for consumers. So is this a trade-off that consumers are are willing to make after years of getting used to open trade, lower consumer prices? Yeah, I mean, is this continuation of the story we've been talking about, fragmentation of the economy. So we have maybe two or three systems developing. We had Putin, Big Daddy Putin saying at a BRICS conference. So this is the conference of the big developing states. Still includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, but it's always extended out to the Indonesias and so on, saying that uh, that's the future of trade for Russia, so that they're making a conscious decision to do that. We know that we've talked about the US, they're trying to find, you know, buddy shoring, friend shoring, nice guy shoring. I just think we need to see how profound a change this is actually going to be. I do think it, it creates opportunities for 
countries not yet in the game to get in the game. So it could be a revival, for instance, of Latin American manufacturing, for instance, or other Asian manufacturing outside China. And it could create, of course, more robust supply chains. So there is, there is something to be said for diversification, especially in a situation with very volatile climate change. So we're going to see ice caps melting, typhoons, hurricanes, all those things are coming. So I think there could, there can be a good side of it. But I guess from an economic standpoint, and we'll hear more from Chad again about this a little bit later, from an economic standpoint, it will be less inefficient. So I think by definition, prices for everybody will be higher uh, and opportunities for innovation will be fewer because that will be eliminating possibilities by virtue of something that doesn't have anything to do with, with those two factors. Listening to you talk about it, it also raises a couple of different questions in my head. I think it's incredibly interesting to see how this unfolds because I think people have gotten accustomed to assuming that robustness necessarily will mean that it comes at the cost of efficiency, but say diversification in terms of where your suppliers are, in terms of markets and countries in Southeast Asia, doesn't necessarily mean that you're bringing everything home. So French shoring and, and things you talked about. China has been seen for the last you know couple of decades as sort of the world's manufacturer, right? And so diversifying a little bit from that is also a way of getting robust, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're moving away from low-cost manufacturing, although people are assuming that it will. I think it will be interesting to see how companies adapt to this sort of new reality because it is sort of solidifying in the thinking of many people, not just us that we're talking about it ad nauseum, but also people who have to deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis, so whose, whose livelihoods depend on it, so suppliers and, and people who are purchasing from these suppliers. So I, I'm interested to see how that unfolds, whether that'll be mean siphoning off some of your ma manufacturing from China, putting it into Southeast Asia, or if it will literally mean moving back to Madison, Wisconsin. I, I think it's more the former rather than the latter. But Yeah, I mean, it takes us to maybe our, our next item, which is closely related, which is some, some of the reasons markets are fragmenting, maybe good reasons. So we see human rights becoming much more to the forefront of discussions around trade. Most recently, there's a passage of a new law by Congress, or it comes into force. This is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. So right now, Customs Service will start enforcing this, and they make a presumption that companies are receiving goods that are the result of forced labor, unless the company can prove otherwise if it comes from Xinjiang province in China. Now, here's an issue, forced labor, which Chad, I'll also talk about this, that we have been too accepting of. Maybe it's been out there, but increasingly regulation and disclosure practices are getting stronger. There's a Modern Slavery Act from the UK, and there's a bunch of other things that are advancing. So if this fragments in some way the economy's and pushes us towards a more sustainable or better kind of trade, this may be a good thing. I don't know what your what your thinking is when you see things like this. Do you think it's purely political? I think for me, and this is something we've talked about, is that you grew up in this sort of, I'm hesitant to use that term, Washington consensus, but you graduated when that was the thing. I sort of went to school, I finished my grad school around the time when you started seeing more critiques against it or they became more mainstream while still sort of applying to the thinking I, I was taught. I think now we're seeing economic priorities are taking a back seat to the political ones. Whether or not that's a good thing, I think is more a philosophical discussion. I think in principle, I'm, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's against using forced labor in the products that they buy and they purchase or that the companies that they purchase from are getting supply from. I just think the ramification needs to be well thought out. And I'm still, I think it remains to be seen. So if you're asking the U.S. Customs and Border Protection to then put up to 10 million companies on a list that then they have to screen and get documentation from before these goods enter the country, that's a big ask. 
it's quite a big asset. But, so, I mean, okay. we had Algina on, uh, I think it was about a year ago, and he's a former customs and border protection agent. He can talk ad nauseum. He can talk about this till the crows come out and or the roosters come out, whatever that expression is. And it is quite interesting because they are inundated with these types of, of issues they have to deal with. And if you're adding 10 million companies that they need to screen, you need to be prepared or that they have the wherewithal and the resources needed to make sure that doesn't become a hindrance. So that adds to the supply chain crisis, that adds to inflation. So in principle, yes, as long as they're backstopped with something that is relatively sensible, right? I think we can all agree, as I said, that we're for, we're against forced labor, but as long as we can make sure that there's a way of verifying that these companies are in fact not using forced labor and in a way that doesn't slow down the process already in an era where we're talking about stagflation, which I thought was a thing of the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, things got to be different soon, right? We know the world's ending. May I just bring that up again? I know it's, this is episodes, whatever, and I've only brought it up once. You're bringing it has got to be different somehow. Down, Regulation's going to be a key to it. So if we keep accepting very heavily polluting, very heavily climate destroying, forced labor driven trade, and with the, and then we're going to continue to get that. So it's going to have to be regulation and it's going to have to be enforced somehow. So I think stuff like this, we have to, of course, we want to do it in the least distorting way possible. But the EU is coming. The U.S. states are coming. The U.S. is coming. We just have to see also how that plays out because that's going to also determine in some ways what supply chains do. If suddenly there's a massive anvil that drops on China and says every time you want to source from there, you're going to get a cold prickly from the U.S. Customs Service, you might source from someplace else. But just by virtue of, I can't get the goods out. Chad P. Bowne is the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the host of Trade Talks podcast. He has worked in the White House, World Bank, and WTO, and for the past 12 years was a professor of economics at Brandeis University in Boston. My old job. Chad joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. to talk. So, Chad, welcome to, to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself for viewers who don't know. That's probably not many of them, but let's just go ahead and do it anyway. So th thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Chad Bown. I'm a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. I'm a PhD trained economist and basically trade is, is sort of all I do. I fell in love with trade, I think my second year at university. I didn't quite understand it, but I thought it was kind of cool and it seemed to be important. And so basically I've spent my life trying to figure it out, try to figure it out. And I work right at the edge of trade conflicts. So where it is that countries don't get along, where they do get along, where they should be getting along, but but aren't. And that's the lens through which I, I, I try to interact with the world has largely turned out to be through international trade. So, yeah. So... I guess one of the one of the most recent kind of lenses, whether it's clear or not, maybe the 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 thing we can ask ourselves is the latest ministerial conference of the WTO. So half my my, my salary is paid by them. So yay, they saved the day somehow. The they, good half. They, they signed a letter at the end. But I guess we wanted to ask for your for your take on that. Now we've had a little time to 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 digest. What did we learn? Did they really save the day? And ultimately, should anybody care? Yeah. So and I can speak to this basically as a. I, I've been fortunate to have basically every trade job that I think one would want to have over the course of my career. So I've been a, an academic, I've been a professor, I've actually worked at the, at the WTO for a while. And so I too understand the value of having the institution. I've worked in government in, in the White House. So I've been on the side of advocating for, for your particular country. And then I've been at the World Bank where I've had to advocate on behalf of developing countries and figure out what's in their best interests as well. So I'm not going to look at it from, from all those different perspectives, but what I guess I would, where I would land on, on the agreement was 
it was hugely positive that they got something agreed. We're, we're moving in a world where things are unraveling along a lot of different dimensions geopolitically with the pandemic, with war. And there was a real concern, I think, that if they didn't agree to something, then that could be a really, really bad sign for a, an institution that's already been struggling for a number of years. And it's not to say that the WTO would have disappeared tomorrow, but things certainly could have gotten worse and it kind of could have become irrelevant. And so we'll see what this actually means. I think that's the really, really big question. My big takeaway from all of this is, yeah, they got something, but what does it mean? I'm inherently an optimist. And because I think I think probably like a lot of your listeners do, that so many of the world's problems and challenges truly are global, that you need to have multilateral institutions out there trying to tackle them. We need places like the WTO. So any time that you see some steps forward in, in global co cooperation is a positive, but hopefully they can use this as, as a chance to kind of move on toward the other big areas that we're struggling with, whether it's on global public health, whether it's on climate change and a lot of other different areas. And if you had to say from the, I mean, there was something a little bit on fishery subsidies or a couple of other things of those, which one would you think could have the most, uh, there was the, the thing on IP for, for vaccines and so on. So which one do you think, hey, this is, has potential to be something? Well, I, I think politically and for global public goods, I think the fisheries agreement was most important. And especially because this was the exogenous mandate of the of the sustainable development goals given to us by the the, the world through through that lens, you had to get something done and, and things hadn't and they had been given a deadline of, of two years ago and still hadn't gotten something done. So they're not all the way there yet. They made progress. They have this agreement and then they set themselves a clock that says, you know, over the next, I think it's four years or so, there's supposed to kind of deal with some of the other aspects of it of it as well. So I think that's positive. This is a, a unique agreement, the fisheries agreement. Vaccines, there's a huge, huge issue on global access to medicines and global access to vaccines. And we really struggled with this through the pandemic. I've spent far too much of my time over the last two years trying to track and understand how the, the vaccine manufacturing supply chains worked and how the system could have gone better. I agree that sharing intellectual property and transferring technology to get more places producing vaccines is something that we need to try to figure out. I don't think, unfortunately, it's as easy as just signing this kind of waiver. It's certainly not going to have much of an impact on the current pandemic. I think there's much bigger challenges to scaling up production during a pandemic that that the world hasn't tackled yet. But again, hopefully the fact that they signaled some progress on this issue means that they can actually turn to some of the other things, including on vaccines that, that still really do need to get done. And they haven't even begun discussing yet. Uh, on that point, I've heard a bit recently on how WTO negotiations have become, let's get to the lowest common denominator of what we can agree to. The problem with that is that it doesn't necessarily get you 100% of where you want to be. Do you think there's an issue with that or there's a risk that negotiations become, listen, what is the, for lack of a better word, most watered down thing we can, we can agree on? And then we'll call it a success. Sometimes, sometimes that's okay. It's better to have something than nothing. I think in the case, in my view, honestly, of, of vaccines, unfortunately, the IP waiver issue was a distraction. And really in order to tackle the issue, what we needed was not waiving IP, but it was kind of like throwing even more at the companies that were manufacturing it 
to provide them with the incentives to like double, triple the size of their manufacturing facilities and plants and production lines to scale up their production. It's just such a difficult thing to do, vaccine manufacturing. It's so tricky. There's so much, so many places where it could go wrong. Even the countries that are very sophisticated here in the United States, where I live, but some of the manufacturing plants that are producing vaccines just completely botched it, right? It's not a trivial thing to do. So in any case, there's a lot, I think that the public health and at real experts in, in this area can teach us once we're willing to kind of take a step back and, and willing to learn from them. You know who you are, Baltimore. Who? Where is that? <laughs> they bought, they botched the vaccines. Wasn't that a Baltimore plant? Well, we, we all saw the wire. So we, we also can't do baby formula. So I don't know how <laughs> super, <laughs> oh, that's another, it's another podcast. Yeah. That's, you touched on it a bit earlier. One thing we've been seeing a lot lately are geopolitical considerations seem to be more important now in determining how trade is structured or at least it seems so. Now, our question is, has this affected how you go about your analysis? Has it, has this always been the case or do we just now realize it? I think it's always been there at some level, but I think it is, it is absolutely the case that things have changed over the last couple of years and geopolitics are playing a much more important role. And I think in, in WTO terms, it's national security, say. What, what that means, I think, is, is tricky. I think folks like us, especially economists, economists were trained to think about, well, how can we improve efficiency? And traditionally, that has meant when it comes to thinking about trade issues, well, how do we get rid of trade barriers? I mean, how do we just get rid of, convince all countries to make trade more efficient? But that's assuming that we all get along and that everybody's going to keep their trade open and not try to use trade as a weapon. And the interdependence is unequivocally a, a good thing. And we've seen, obviously, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and threats and now uh, restrictions on, on energy supplies, it's not the only example, but the, probably the biggest one of this interdependence being weaponized. And so now we're, we're confronted with that. And I think the folks of us that work in this area that try to be useful if we want to continue to be useful, we have to take the kind of the remit from politicians and policymakers that are ultimately going to be the decision makers. And if they say, look, we're living in a new world where it's not all just about economic efficiency anymore, we're going to have some hard lines and that we're not going to allow ourselves to be as reliant on country X, or we need to be more diversified in sector Y, semiconductors or something like that, then we have to treat that seriously. And we have to work within the, the remit that they give us if we want to continue to, to play a positive role. So I do think that the role that we are all gonna have to play is going to change. And it's it's changing for a lot of reasons that exactly have to do with geopolitics. Yeah, and maybe this, I mean, I remember Lighthizer said politicians, this, the public hasn't been involved enough in driving trade policy. It's been too much Geneva, too many experts, too many maybe folks like us. Is that is that kind of what we're we're seeing now? This speak for yourself. Yeah, I, I'm speaking for somebody else entirely. <laughs> so that the involvement of political forces, maybe this is a rebalancing. So less Geneva, for instance, and more 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 political. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't give all that much credit to either Geneva or folks like us <laughs> for for what for what's happening. I think this was very much what policymakers in capitals wanted to have happen, and combine that with advances in in technology and the fact that geopolitics really weren't playing a huge role when it looked like Europe and Russia were getting along and the United States and China were getting along, then, hey, an increased trade is, is a good thing. I think obviously we had a hiccup here in the United States with the Trump administration, which 
miscast trade or, or characterized trade as the villain for every one of America's ills, which was, is a very savvy political strategy, but I think is also fundamentally flawed in, in terms of the, the empirical evidence. Not that trade doesn't have distributional impacts, it does. I'm an economist. I believe the evidence, but overwhelmingly, it's also, it's also a positive force. It just, you need to have the complementary domestic policies to make sure that you get the redistribution and that the folks that are sometimes adversely affected by trade get compensated or can help transition to better outcomes. But yeah, we're there too. We're definitely in a new, not only geopolitical moment, but one, at least here in the United States, but probably in a lot of other places around the world where domestic politics are not all that favorable toward trade, even if you were to push aside the, the geopolitics, it's not a great moment to be forward leaning on trade liberalization and, and globalization, say. So, so not great, but good. It's good. Yeah, positive. So we want to take you to the sports section of our podcast. What What's the score in the trade war with China? Are we winning? Do we have negative numbers in sports scores? Golf? Yeah. Negative 300. <laughs> negative something in golf? Yeah, maybe golf would, you know, yeah, maybe that's the only sport I can think of where, uh, yeah. No, I mean, there's there's no there's no winners in a trade war. And I think the evidence is, is kind of bearing that out. We may now be in a place geopolitically where it's going to be impossible to reverse the trade war, which was seemingly initially undertaken for kind of economic reasons. Maybe you could... You could buy some of the underlying arguments that the U.S. has had you know, about concerns with China and its involvement in, in, in the economy, not market oriented enough, too many subsidies forcibly trans. You can you could you can buy into a lot of those economic arguments. But I think the geopolitics have shifted so much that it's you're probably playing a different game now than we were three years ago when it comes to U.S.-China trade. One thing that we've seen recently, I think it was a couple of days ago, was this law signed in into Congress regarding forced labor in, in Xinjiang. Do you think this is a good example of, of the things you were talking about earlier on how we're going to have to factor in these quote-unquote red lines into how we, we talk about trade or economics and, and the costs and trade-offs? Because it seems, it seems like a good idea in, in practice, and it well maybe. But it comes with implications. Checking in millions of goods that come through the border is is no easy task. Is, is this an example? Yeah. And so just to give 10 seconds on the law, so the United States, we, we passed this law that is essentially forcing firms to have to do more due diligence about where their products that may have supply chain ties to the Shenzhen region of, of China, where they're coming from and potentially leading to bans at the border. And so this is now, it was a warning, the law was coming and now it's being implemented. So the issue, the underlying issue is obviously important, forced labor. I think most folks would say, yeah, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We don't want to be consuming products that would, that would support that in any way, shape or form. The question is, what do we do about it? And so the way the United States has gone about it is to write this law. And uh, now it's up to the customs and border. You know, so the talk about the Baltimore, right? If you watch The Wire, you remember season two, uh, the, the folks working at the port, they're now the ones tasked with determining whether or not these products have inputs that are made with forced labor in them or, or not. And the companies are, are, you know, can try to show somehow that that isn't happening, but it's really, really difficult to show it, especially because China is making it extraordinarily difficult for auditors to get on the ground in the region to help authenticate that, no, 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 these products weren't made using inputs that, that were accessed via forced labor. So this is still to play out how, how disruptive this is ultimately going to be. I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see. It's going to depend, I think, on how strongly, strictly they enforce it. 
But yeah, this has a chance to be incredibly disruptive on trade, maybe impact supply chains, create uncertainty for companies. But this is one of the things that I think there's there's kind of good reasons here to be concerned about these types yeah. of things. So it's interesting to, to see it evolve. Yeah, I think we need to move on to the more serious questions. This is this is the real thing. So if you're ready, Chad, first question, buckle in. Which is your favorite trade podcast? It's usually anyone that I'm not involved in. Um, <laughs> I like this guy. I like him. Yeah, no, my, 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 my favorite stuff, though, is I came to really love podcasts when the financial crisis hit. And it was new at the time, but what National Public Radio in the United States launched with Planet Money. And this is just all about economics. And so anytime they would do anything on trade, that just got me fired up and I was super excited. And it was my goal in life to someday be on Planet Money. And so when the trade war hit and they called and I actually got to be on Planet Money, that was like the highlight of my, I think, entire life. So Planet Money, or then anything that my co-host for a number of years at Trade Talks, Samia Keynes, does. She's brilliant. The fact that I'm still podcasting is only because she taught me many, many things. And hopefully I haven't lost them all. But she is just absolutely brilliant in this space. And trades planning. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> and and started with planet money. Yeah. That was the highlight. And from there, it just goes downhill. So just in terms of when your career started, how many times has globalization been pronounced dead? And uh, do you think this time it's, it's actually dead? I think it's... It's more deadish now, or people are saying it's more deadish now, but you're right. I mean, they've been saying it's, it's, it's been going to die at least since 2008, nine in the, in the financial crisis. I do think this is, this is a very different kind of moment. I don't think that trade is going to end, but I do think the world is probably going to shift. They'll probably, my, my sense is they'll probably be the same amount of trade. It will just be different with different countries trading with each other. Some countries that were trading a lot with each other and certain products, maybe not doing as much of that stuff. But those those countries aren't going to stop trading with anyone. I think they've recognized the benefits of efficiency and supply chains. It's just trying to figure out how to do so in a way that's maybe less about economic efficiency and more about these other things that we're worried about, which include now public health, climate, and labor, and, and national security, and all those fun topics too. So it's not that I'm sure it'll be a, a sequel though. It's yeah. like a Freddy Krueger and Jason... <laughs> Voorhees had a baby, it would be globalization. But yeah, it's, it's never dead. Yeah, 13. Globalization 13. Yeah. Okay, we had some questions from our listeners. Are you named after a country? No, unfortunately, because the, the African one, in French at least, begins with a T. So, Somebody wrote yeah. your name in our interview notes here with a TC. Yeah, that's so, be so I should start you spelling it like to that. Be so, much, so much cooler. No, I think my mom named me after an, an actor named Chad Everett. And it, it was a famous like TV yeah. star in the 1970s on some medical drama or something like that. That's the story I get. Like a leading, so unfortunately, yeah. n- not anything as good as being named after a country. All right. But that's your story now. So you can tell it. You can stick to it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Originally it was with a T, but it got changed. Yeah. We know the truth. So we have a, we're, we're scientific as you are. We're analysts and we have a couple of questions we ask, which are more data driven. So one of the things we do here as a kind of sport in Geneva is get our bikes stolen. So have you ever had a bike stolen? I've never had a bike stolen, but I have gotten a speeding ticket on my bike. Well, okay. That's not quite true. I have gotten a ticket for not stopping at a stop sign when I was supposed to stop at a stop sign on the bike. Can't, can't say it. I mean, I guess technically I was going too fast. I should have been going zero. <laughs> you, you may be the only cyclist I've ever heard who gets the cops after them. Usually they're just getting yeah. red lights. You're the not, only one. Not, not only that, but he, as the police officer was writing out my ticket. So my last name is the most complicated four-letter last name on the planet because people think it's Brown, not Bound. But the police officer 
starts writing out my last name as Brown, and I corrected him. Oh, no, <laughs> my rookie yeah. move, so rookie I, mistake. Totally rookie move. I was like, no, 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 I want this. I want credit for this. <laughs> I was on my bike. This could, this could be looked up as a database. Oh, that wasn't in Geneva, I'm guessing. No, that was here in, in Washington, D.C. So this is actually Rob's, he, he may talk about bikes a lot, but this is actually his favorite one. What is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? He talks a lot of Yang, but it's usually Alamir. But uh, if not, and I believe you have been to Geneva before quite a bit, you've worked at WTO. If not... Alamir, then what is your guilty pleasure? So when I lived in Geneva, I was, I was an academic and so did not have either a very nice international organization salary or an expat salary. I was living on an academic salary. And so I think my wife and I, and I had two year old twin daughters at the time, we were basically on, basically living on macaroni and cheese because we couldn't afford to, to eat out. Now, when I go back though, my, I have to, it's either filet de perche or cafe de soleil and fondue raclette, the traditional Swiss specialties anytime I can. We're, TS Studios is around the corner from Café du Soleil. So I think we're going to put in a dinging bell. Just tell them I sent you. Are they one of your sponsors, advertisers? Not yet, but they will be. They should we're be. Yeah, we're still, as, as you may know, pre, pre-revenue, pre-revenue stage of this particular startup. So is Uber. <laughs> so I, I like to think of it as we're, we're dumping. Uh, yes. relative to all the other and I'm, I'm surprised nobody has, has filed a petition against us yet. Well, Chad, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. I'm sure our listeners will find it super enlightening. Thanks for having me and, and keep up your great work, trade splaining. We need more splaining of trade wherever we can get it in whatever form. And if folks want to read more about what you're doing, where, where can they go to find it? Just Google it. Google. T-C-H-A-D Brown. <laughs> yeah. And good luck. <laughs> What about inflation? Have we got something on inflation? Speaking of inflation, you know what's going to be really expensive? Fixing my broken phone. Not if you had Case Folklore. What's Case Folklore? So Case Folklore is a free customizable case that you can buy for your phone and not break it like you do, Rob. So listeners out there, don't be like Rob and go pick up a customized case by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code explaining at checkout. Well, everybody, that brings us to our segment where we hand the mic over to our TS correspondent, Michelle, to bring us up to speed on the end of Globalization Watch. What are they saying about the end of Globalization, Michelle? Is it finally dead? Well, this week I tried to do the research a little bit differently. And by research, I mean I went on Tinder dates and I just listened to what people are talking about, what they're saying about globalization. And then I just made a short list of things that surprised me the most about what people have said. The first one is that Bitcoin has entered a new market and it's the I'm buying Bitcoin ironically market. I can't tell if these people are really buying Bitcoins because they expect a return and they're kind of downplaying their hopes or if this is kind of a new publicity technique. But I don't understand if you're buying Bitcoin, just like own it. Just say it and it's fine. You didn't have to put me on blast, Michelle. I think you had Bitcoin before the I'm buying Bitcoin ironically thing. I bought the blank out of that dip. It's important to clarify that neither Artie nor I are on Tinder. Which is a good thing. (laughs) Important point. Then the second thing is barbershops are the future. So admittedly, I thought they were already kind of the new thing that springs up on every street corner. But I guess Top Gun had a much bigger impact on the cultural zeitgeist than I thought. These people are not worried about globalization at all, or globalization ending, I should say, because apparently we'll all be owning local barbershops in the future. 
because who cares about any other businesses where everyone can look like Miles Teller? Especially when in Geneva, at least, barbershops are there to launder money. Yeah. I would say so, but these people have real business plans because I should say Tinder dates now are just like business pitches. Yeah. Walter White is old news. He had the laundromat. <laughs> now it's go to Rob's barbershop. Wink, wink. And then on the other hand, completely separate from the guy who wanted to open a barbershop, we have an everything store. So this is another pitch for a local business because, yes, as I said, it's all pitches. This is basically the idea of opening Amazon, but like in a physical store, which feels like reinventing the wheel a little bit. Because I quote, we shouldn't have supply chain issues if these stores were just physically there. This is a real thing I have heard. Never mind that the stores obviously need a supply. That's obviously not a part of the pitch. It wasn't considered in the business plan and no questions were answered on that subject. And, and what are you pitching during these? I'm pitching the podcast. That's what I do. Very good. I sell That's this podcast. Like yeah, thumbs up. That's what we like to hear. And so if um, they're listening to it, they'll know. Yeah, swipe right. And also on this podcast, swipe right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the plot to 40-Year-Old Virgin, with his love interest. We sell stuff on eBay. Yeah, we sell your stuff on eBay. Yeah, it's kind of reversed though. It would be nice to have a store where you can go and pick up anything. I just don't see how that works. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, call us. Very good. Thank you, Michelle. And I guess globalization will survive for another week. This brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. First off, I did want to bring in something that I think it's important for us to talk about. I read a Wall Street, yes, Wall Street Journal guide to dressing for four types of weddings you might encounter during post-lockdown nuptials. And there's, apparently there's a boom of these. And of Say course, all my fast. folks have gotten married already. So this is basically for you, Artie. So outdoorsy elegance, sheeply quirky, extremely extra, or beachy, but not banal. This is like a question of what yeah. kind of So which, which, which of wedding you? would you do? And then I also wanted to come up with a follow-up, which is apparently skin is in. So uh, women can be more expressive and sexy. Uh, I'm thinking, can I do that? If skin is in, can I do more skin? Uh, I no, want to be the no, pretty one. Yeah. No comment, one. And two, who at the Wall Street Journal thought this was a good idea? To put we, we did a, our own informal in. survey with Valentina and Michelle. They both went for extremely extra. I'm definitely the elegant one because I'm not about like, look at me, but look at me after you've seen all the other all right. Joe Schmoes. All right. Well, That's, I think this is a good chance for us to bring our I don't listeners like to stick in. Out. If you'd like to express your, <laughs> your thinking on any of these types of weddings, or more importantly, <laughs> Whether if skin is in, whether this would be a good chance for this to be equal opportunity. Everybody can show more skin. Or not, but whatever rocks your boat, <laughs> send in those points at trade.splaining at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter or Instagram. Last, there was an more. impassioned announcement by Geneva officials. You'll remember last episode, we talked about some rogue planting of trees here in Geneva. Otherwise known as a Wednesday <laughs> exactly. in a trade planting. So what they've said, they came back out, they said, hey, we do understand trees are good. It's not about trees not being good, but we've got to do this in a certain way. They said, hey, these trees were picked right, they were planted right, but you just got to talk to us first. Please just let us know who did this thing. Please reach out. So I, I think for me and you, I know already to the to our listeners, if you planted those three trees in a Geneva park, please contact the authorities. Well, it definitely was not me because I don't plant anything. But also, now that I've become Swiss in true fashion, I've immediately turned rightward and I'm not happy with these eco-terrorists. I don't know how we... <laughs> 
<laughs> before you look, you know it, you turn around. I'm just trees everywhere. Yeah, literally, yeah. when does this end? It's a slippery slope into yeah. I think tree this, anarchy. I think right now this kind of tree like soft approach they're taking. Let's see if it has results. But I don't know. I don't know when this might go towards a more red heat, top gun type situation where they have to go for enforcement. I think we're quickly <laughs> entering the danger zone of this tree planting. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 34, brought to you by the artist Selena Gomez, Chad Bone, the trade ministers of MC12, and of course, Geneva's Rogue Trees. We also want to thank our executive producer and White House correspondent, Michelle Ogin, as well as TS producer, Valentina Saponara, for helping us and produce this episode as always. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon in the next couple of weeks. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and a whole bunch more that I don't want to say because I'm out of breath. Basically, really anywhere you get your podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do read all of them, so be gentle. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.splaining. Or email us your questions and comments the old-fashioned way at Trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly.